So uh, what if you could travel back in time to talk to anyone, you know, from history who is no longer here anymore? And maybe you've been a part of conversations where people have talked about that, like where, you know, who would you talk to? And some people think, well, maybe, maybe someone in my own family, maybe a, a great-grandfather or a great-grandmother. What is it like, you know, coming over to, you know, whatever it happened to be? Um, maybe you think about someone inspirational from, you know, Canadian history. Maybe you think Terry Fox, how amazing would it be to talk to Terry Fox? Or someone else from some great historical moment like Rosa Parks. You know, what would it be like to, to talk with her? And then you think, okay, wait a second, let's go back further. We, this could be any time in history. So what about maybe um, Napoleon? What about Alexander the Great? Then you think, oh, wait a second, this includes biblical times. We could talk to people in the Bible. Imagine talking to Queen Esther about what her experience was like. Or imagine talking uh, to Daniel or Moses. Imagine being mo with Moses and talking to him. You know, Pharaoh's army is bearing, bearing down on him and like the, the, the sea is parted and you're standing there talking like a, sea, like a fish comes out of a wave sideways. Like how crazy would that be? Or maybe you think Abraham or Sarah or, oh wow, hold on, Adam and Eve. Let's talk to Adam and Eve. Don't eat the fruit for goodness sakes. <laughs> Stop listening to the talking serpent. But of course, these roads usually lead back to Jesus, of course. Okay, if he is the great I am, who he says he is, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Son of God, wouldn't it be amazing that we could actually have a conversation with him, hear his words? Let me go one further. Imagine that you could actually be with Jesus while he's saying a prayer for you. How awesome would that be? To be in the presence of Jesus, listening to him say a prayer where he had you in mind, and you're actually, he's actually praying for you. And let's go one further still. Let's imagine that this prayer tells you something about what he wants from your life. How amazing would that be? Now, I don't have a time machine. This isn't back to the future, you know. Uh, you know. So we can't physically go back to be with Jesus, but we can actually tune into a prayer that he had in mind, thinking specifically about his people, specifically future believers, and also uh, it's something that tells us something about what he wants from our lives. See, the thing is in John 17, the whole of John 17 is a prayer by Jesus. And he's praying for his 11 apostles before he leaves the earth. But here's the thing. In verse 20, he actually says, this prayer is not only for you, but for those who will come to believe in me. He's speaking about future believers through their message. Okay, so who's there with him? Think of the 11 apostles. Judas is no longer there. The 11 apostles, there is... Matthew, who writes the Gospel of Matthew. There is uh, Peter, who shares the sayings of Jesus and the events of Jesus with uh, Mark, who records the Gospel of Mark. Luke isn't there, but Luke has spent some time gathering eyewitness testimony. John the Apostle is there. He's writing down the words and actions of Jesus. These people are sitting with him. And so we, the rest of us, believers in future generations, we have actually come to believe through their message. Ergo, what Jesus prays for them then, he actually intends for us today. And what he said bears on something that he wants from us in our lives. Now, <clears throat> when it comes to that sort of thing, we can want um, very specific details. What does God want for me in, in, in my life? His, his purpose is for me. Uh, we can want the specific details. Okay, how many kids should we have? Or should I take that job? Or... Um, the, these sorts of various things. How should I deal with this friend at school who's, who's causing me problems? All these sorts of questions. Um, <clears throat> but what I like to think about it is it's more like kind of a big picture roadmap. Okay? So uh, in, the, in the old days, 
when you were going on a trip somewhere, you had to go to a store and buy a paper map. It's crazy. Those of you born in the past 25 years are like, what? You've seen these maps, okay? So you can't like type anything to some like instantly calibrated digital map, you know, on your phone or your GPS or whatever it happens to be. You had to actually go to a place and buy, okay, so let's say you're going to Myrtle Beach, okay? You got to buy a map of, you know, the eastern coast of America and you got to map, okay, the eye such and such turns to this highway. And so that's what we think about some of these big picture purposes. Now, the thing is, is that in those maps, there are these little insets. So let's say you come across Pittsburgh or Buffalo or New York, you know, the more detail is needed. And so there's this little inset box, right, that comes off to the side and shows you, okay, here's more detail about what downtown is like. When it comes to like God's purposes for our life, that's kind of the level of detail that we want. We want that. We sometimes have it. We don't always have it. But instead, we have this larger big picture map. And what we do is we understand these, these purposes, these things that God wants for us. We take those ideas and those principles that Jesus says, and we apply them to those insets. We apply them to those specific things that we are dealing with. Okay, And that's what we discover in John 17. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read right through it. So usually when... Uh, I, I present a biblical text to you. I go a couple verses at a time. I explain some stuff to, for clarity. A couple more verses, explain some more. We're not going to do that today. We're going to try to simulate, you know, reading Jesus' entire prayer. We're going to imagine that we are there with him uh, listening to Jesus pray this prayer. So we're going to go right through. So I'm not going to stop because we want to be like, okay, what was it like to be there with him listening to it? Um, but so that we don't get caught up on some details, I want to highlight uh, four different things before we get there. So we're going to put them up here. Because I think this sets the tone. And so if we're just listening, uh, we're going to hear a few things that we're going to kind of take our minds other places. And so I'm going to explain them ahead of time so we can read, read the text all at once, okay? So the first thing we need to keep in mind in John 17, and this is a, a part of our journey through the Gospel of John, and we have to remember where we are, is that this is really on the verge of Jesus' betrayal, his, his, his trial, his torture, his crucifixion. And so starting next week, we are getting into that. As we are in Lent, we're actually starting to go through the, the details of when, the, when the, it really gets intense and heavy for Jesus. And so this is a lead-up time, a farewell prayer. Part of what scholars call the farewell discourse is the last thing before you know, Garden of Gethsemane and, and, the, and the arrest and everything else. And so when people die... Uh, not all people, when some people die, they, they share, th the, the things that they share with people are important things. You don't tend to, you know, waste too much time on small talk if, like, your own death is imminent. Uh, we have stories of this in the Bible. Moses, before he died, he gathered people around him, and he has this farewell teaching. It's like, loved ones gather around, you want to share them that bit of wisdom that you want them to have, because you're not physically going to be with them anymore to share this with them. And so you love them, you want to share that with them. Maybe it's a word of forgiveness or a word of direction or whatever it happens to be. And so there's probably people in your own life and you've experienced this. Someone shared a tender word, you know, in their final days or something. And so we can think of this as a farewell prayer. Jesus, just before this incredibly horrific thing happens to him, this is what he prays for his apostles. He prays to his heavenly father and he's thinking of us. Second thing we should point out in uh, verse 12 uh, mentions the son of destruction. So, so that doesn't throw you off. That's a reference to Judas, who has already left to do his betraying work. In verse 14, he says, They, meaning the disciples, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, there's an expression you've probably sometimes heard, that Christians or believers are in the world, but not of the world. Have you heard that? In, but not of the world. So that's not a direct quote from the Bible, but it's based on this verse. 
in but not of the world. The idea is that we live in the world, but we are not of the world, meaning we are not defined by the world. We are not defined by the prevailing cultural majority and morality. We are not defined by those aspects of our world or culture which oppose God. We're in but not of. And so lastly, setting the mood. So uh, I think this has to do with, uh, I kind of think of it like twilight, when we kind of situate ourselves in the story. So twilight is that time between sunset uh, and dusk, right? So the sun has gone down in the evening, um, so you can't see it anymore, but there's still some light there. Uh, so it's that kind of in-between time. And so it's kind of peaceful. All of a sudden, the sounds of night start to get a bit louder, crickets or whatever happens to be, depending on where you are, depending on the season. Uh, but also, because it's like you can't see perfectly well, you're kind of looking over your back if you're out walking through a trail and you hear someone, right? All of a sudden, the, the darkness is, it's kind of an in-between time between light and dark. And I think kind of to get our brains in the right mind space here, this is what is happening existentially in the story of Jesus. He offers this prayer and it's kind of like existential twilight in the sense that he is speaking, he is sharing words of light, he is praying for his followers right before the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the betrayal at night and before the spiritual darkness starts to surround everybody. And so what we're going to do is to try to kind of imagine that we are there a little bit. Again, we, we don't have a time machine, but to set the mood a little bit, we're going to, we're going to uh, we're going to hear some sound effects as if we were there. We're going to hear some cricket sounds, uh, maybe some, some wind going through the trees. Feel free to cue that, uh, Jamie and Deb. And just kind of try to be, if you want to close your eyes, you can be. There might be some birds that you hear sometimes. Imagine that you are there and, and you are at the feet of Jesus, listening to this prayer that he's praying for his disciples then and now, right before his betrayal. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All, is my, all mine is yours and yours is mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, 
which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, the, have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, all right. So here's what I want you to keep in mind as we think through this. What Jesus prays for you is God's will for you. Okay, so let's say a friend prays some things for you. This friend, and the friend cares about you. And a friend wants good things for you, and I, I want you to, to ace that lab in science. I want you to, or I want you to, to be well. I want this certain result after you go to the doctor, or I want you to deal with so-and-so that you're really having a hard time with like such and such. That's nice. We, we, we trust in God's timing and his wisdom. And we really appreciate, we feel supported when someone uh, prays for us like that. But they're not God, right? But Jesus, when he prays for someone, Jesus, if he is who he says he is, which he is, he is the, al the Almighty I Am, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. So if he prays things for us, this is God's will for us. And so we have a confidence in that. What Jesus prays for you is God's will for you. This also connects to something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We talked about praying in Jesus' name. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, it's not a blank check. Right? Let's say, uh, you know, I pray that, that's like the, here's the example I used a couple weeks ago. I pray that my Amazon package gets here a day early in Jesus' name. Or I pray that Mr. or Miss Perfect, you know, ask me out for a date in Jesus' name. God's got to get to it, right? No. Praying in Jesus' name presupposes a certain motive. We are trying to pray for things that are consistent with his character and will. 
So we are seeking, okay, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the will of God in this situation, in my soul, in my household, in my relationships, in my work, in my retirement, whatever it happens to be? So what Jesus prays for you is God's will for you. So I'm going to go through some of these things, and you've seen these summarized in the green insert in today's bulletin, okay? So if you want to see these and you can take note of them, take them with you. And this not only helps us to know what Jesus was praying for us that has to do with his will for us, but it can also guide your own prayer life, okay? And, all, and for those watching at home, it's on the website under blog. So Kristen has provided a summary there as well. We're just going to go through them. And if you want to have your Bible open to John 17, highlight some things that are particularly um, standout-ish to you, feel free to do so. Uh, here's number one. He prays for his disciples then and now for you to have eternal life. And we can't miss that. What does he say? Verse 3, this is eternal life. And here's one of the definitions of eternal life. This is what it is. That they, the disciples, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's knowing God. It presumes relationship. This isn't about the accumulation of information. Knowing in the biblical senses is intimately knowing. That they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's this, this relationship. And notice that it's not just about duration of life. It's not about how long we live, but how we live. Yes, it extends beyond the narrow parameters of death as we move forward towards salvation, sure. But it's also walking with Jesus. It's knowing him in this life as well. And so I know we're visual people, and we like to have little priority lists, okay? We need to know that this is number one, and it is the most important thing. So I've concocted a very simple, memorable graph about priorities that will help us remember this. Here it is. Priority number one, God. Priority number two, everything else. Everyone remember that? Okay, that's good. Now you're like, yeah, that priority number two, that's kind of hard to figure out. I know. You got to do some work in priority number two. But here's the thing. Unless God's on top, nothing else matters. For you to have eternal life. Number two, he prays for his disciples then and now for being kept guarded in God. Being kept and guarded in God. That's what it says in verse 11. Holy Father, by the way, the only time that title is used uh, in, in the Gospels. Holy Father, keep them in your name. This is about the long haul. So, okay, there's belief, but preserve us, keep us over the long haul as we are going through difficulties because we all face them. It's not like we believe and all of a sudden our life is free from worry. In fact, many passages tell us that the opposite is going to happen. The, the narrow gate, the narrow road, difficult decisions, choosing Jesus, carrying your cross. Preserve us as we go through the ups and downs over the long haul. Lord, I'm struggling. Sickness is in the house and I hate it. Preserve me, keep me, Lord. That's what this is. God, these people I love are going out into the world. I don't even hear from them every day. Keep me, Lord. Keep them over the long haul. Preserve us, Lord. Number three, he prays for his disciples then and now for his joy to be within us. I love that. Verse 13 says, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And I just love this. This speaks to us about the heart of God. He wants his joy to be within us as we go through life. And I just so value and appreciate that. This tells us something about uh, the heart of God. Not only that, but think of where we are in the story. Jesus, and he knows what's coming, Right? This is in this existential twilight. He's about to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has done his work. There's going to be the betrayal, the torture, the, everything. He knows it's all coming, and he's praying for joy in his followers. 
Now, remember that joy, and we've talked about this a few times, but we always need to come back to this because it's so easy to miss because in our culture today, people, they, they kind of mix up joy and happiness, right? Happiness kind of is, is more external. Things happen to you. It's like a roller coaster. Something good happens, I'm happy. Something sad happens, I'm sad, right? All these things happen to us, but joy is, as we've been saying, more bedrock stuff or to think of that um, from the reformer, uh, John Calvin, his definition from his commentary on John, it is eternal stability. So things might happen to us out in our lives, but we have this eternal stability. It's like we, we, we have this deep confidence that God is who he says he is, that God is good, that he is wise, that he is providing through, for us through the thick and thin. Right? This is what joy is. I was uh, driving down the road one, one, I forget even where it was, but there was this guy, he had his tractor backed up to this stump on, on the ground, and there was chains going from, like, you know, the hitch of the tractor around this stump, and this guy was, like, pulling on this tractor, trying to get the stump out. You know what happens, right? Like, and, he's, and this stump was so stubborn, it would just not move. And this guy, and maybe the tractor wasn't big enough, or maybe the, the stumps, they have these root structure that goes so deep down that it's very hard to rip the roots or the stump out of the ground. And to me, that's a great picture about the joy that Jesus gives to us, even through the difficulties that we have. No Massey Ferguson, no John Deere. Well, to rip that joy deeply from within us. Number four, he prays for protection from the evil one. This comes up more than you think. For protection from the evil one. This is not the only place he prays for that, of course. We prayed for it already, Matthew 6. Deliver us from evil. Another translation, in fact, modern translations of the Bible, say, deliver us from the evil one. Now, this is a reference to Satan, the devil, right? So a couple of things here. Um, actually, it's also interesting that <clears throat> he specifically mentions that he's not going to take them out of the world. He specifically goes out of his way to say that. It'd be easier, just take us out. Of, just, we want to get out of here. We want to avoid the pain. We want to avoid the difficulty. Lord, just take us out of this junk. He specifically goes out of his way to say, I'm not doing that. I'm not taking you out of the world. I, I pray that in the world, while you're doing the work that I've called you to do, you will have protection from the evil one. I love to just avoid all the hardship and the heartache and everything else. I'd love to avoid all that. I, I'm not sure there's someone who prays for the return of Jesus more than me. I'm sure some of you are like, Jesus, please come back. Look at all this craziness, Lord. Oh my goodness. Please return. Usher in the new heavens and the new earth, the place where righteousness dwells, oh Lord. I can't wait. And yet we are in the world, not of the world, but he prays that we might have protection from the evil one. Three quick things about the evil one. First, this is a reminder that he is real. It's not mythology. He is real. Satan is real in the world, so we need to, to know that. That's the, that's the teaching of Jesus. It's the New Testament worldview. Second, we need protection from him. So that's significant. We actually need protection from him because why? We, we have, in faith, we have aligned ourselves with Jesus, who is his enemy. And so if we are standing with him and mud is getting slung at Jesus, well, we're in the line of fire. Right, so this has to go to spiritual warfare, and we've talked about this. It's a big topic, um, but we do need protection. The third thing we need to know is that we have nothing to fear. There is nothing to fear because the one who is in us, 1 John 4, 4, as we've been talking about, is greater than the one who is in the world. And so a good way to think about it is that on the cross and empty tomb, the great events of Easter that we celebrate, the decisive blow has been dealt 
to Satan and his workers. And so the outcome is assured, but with whatever remaining energy he has left, he's trying to you know, thwart and contradict and go against and bring down the people of God. But if we are in Christ, there's nothing to fear. Number five, he prays for holiness in God's truth for us. For holiness in God's truth. Verse 17, also implied in verse 19, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Now this is about being separate or set apartness. And we get tripped up on the word holy. It sounds so, it sounds so holy. Holier than thou. Oh, that person seems so holy. No. That's the culture's way of dismissing a biblical idea which Jesus says is true. To be holy means you've been set apart for a special godly purpose. You've been set apart. You are distinct for a special godly purpose. Are you perfect? No. Do you make mistakes? No. Are you broken? Yes. We're all broken in our own ways. But you are set apart for a distinct godly purpose. That's set apartness. That's who we are in Christ. And so we are to be holy in God's truth. Philip Yancey tells a story about a woman he knew who was going through chemotherapy. Some of you have been through it. You know people who have been through it. It's very hard. And I'm not a doctor, but from what I have understand, from my experience, it's like the, the chemotherapy drugs go into your system. They kill quickly developing and expanding kind of cancer cells, right? But it's very hard on the system. People really, it's really hard to go through chemotherapy and other stuff's getting killed in the body and everything else. It's, it's horrible. This woman who was going through chemotherapy, as she was experiencing chemotherapy, this was her, her prayer. Dear God, also kill anything within me which is unholy. As this chemotherapy is going through me, Lord God, please kill anything in me that is unholy. And that is a picture of someone who has grasped the importance of their distinctness for Jesus. How do we know what is holy? Well, the scriptures. We will not know any other way. We read the Bible, we reflect on passages, we work them into our prayers, which is what we will do if we're praying these sorts of things that Jesus prays. We sit under biblical preaching, we listen to podcasts or music that has been touched by the words of God, we saturate ourselves in the words of God on the process of holiness. And it's a work of the Spirit, the Spirit does this through us, but we are opening ourselves up to His work when we are steeped in the Scriptures. Hmm. Number six, he prays for unity among believers. That they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 11, then verse 21, then verse 22, then verse 20. This is the thing he prays for the most as he's about to leave. And physically for the time being anyway. Unity among believers. Look at how many times he says it over and over and over again. And when we think of something like this, to be honest, we can kind of scratch our heads a bit. Because you know, we look at all the different denominations in the world. Um, even here in Canada, here in Barrie, all these different denominations, and we see, is this a sign of disunity? Or is this something that we should be ashamed of? And so I want to highlight a few things. Uh, not necessarily. First, believers can be unified even when they come from different traditions. The important thing is to focus on what we have in common, not some of the historical distinctives theologically uh, which have differentiated uh, Christians. For example, I've got you know, friends who are Anglicans or Baptists or non-denominational evangelicals. That's all right. We're, we're, all, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so just because there are different denominations, that's not necessarily a sign of disunity. I think it's important to stress that. And I know many of you have come from different backgrounds too. Second, pretend unity is not unity. And so let's say there's a denomination that's drifting theologically. 
And they say, let's say, okay, we're, we're, we have a, diff a difference of opinions about something like the resurrection. Some people think that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. Some people think he wasn't physically raised from the dead. Let's, for the sake of Christian unity, let's, let's all stay together. That's not unity. That's pretending. You can't base unity when you depart from core historic Christian beliefs. It's not unity. It's child's play. Third, <clears throat> What Jesus prays for us should encourage all of us to think of our togetherness in the body of Christ very deliberately. How are we focusing on our togetherness? How are we mutually supporting one another and building each other up? As I've said recently, we're not consumers of spiritual services. We are proactive contributors to the body of Jesus. Proactive contributors to the body of Jesus. When we come to worship or we come to serve in a sway in a group or something, how am I going to contribute to the body of Christ, to the believers, as it spans all around the earth, the world? How are we contributing to this unity as God's people, as the church is so diverse, as it meets in a hut in Angola, as it meets somewhere in North America with a church with 15 staff and a budget and a marketing campaign and everything else, or, or, or maybe in a, in a school in Tanzania or, or in a house church which is persecuted in North Korea and those people on their way to worship are literally getting shot at with bullets. How can we be proactive about our role in the body of Christ? Seven, Jesus prays for his disciples then and now for being at his side and seeing his glory. He just says, verse 24, implied in verse 26, I desire that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. So the first part of that is wanting to be at the side of Jesus, being at his side. And I love that. It's journeying with him. It's about loyalty, right? And we need to kind of do a bit of a gut check sometimes because it's nice to be at Jesus' side when people think that's great or when everything's coming up roses or we're talking about forgiveness or peace or look at how kind he is. I need that forgiveness. And then, then stuff gets tough and we, and we stand firm in a certain way that other people don't like. Or, or maybe, you know, he, he wants us to carry a certain cross or a burden or, or a ministry. And it's hard. We are to be with Jesus through the ups and downs, through the daily walk. But not only that, the second part of that is seeing and beholding his glory. And this is so good, but think of, the, think of the world we live in. I don't know about you, but some nights I go to bed, and I'm like, Lord, there is so much violence. There is so much filth. There is so much hate. The trafficking, Lord, the injustice, the, the, the massive epidemic eroding people and relationships called pornography everywhere. Lord, the greed that is in this world, the way people use their words, the, all the different things, I think to myself, I'm going to vomit when I think about some of the horrific things that are just there and getting worse in our world. And so Jesus, knowing that, gives us a contrast view. Fix your eyes on me. Look how beautiful I am. Look at my glory. Look at how good it is. Look at, look at me, look at the love, the light, the, the holiness, the goodness that, that I am and that you can be a part of. He wants us to fix our eyes, not on the junk, although we, we don't close a blind eye and we want to be a part of the solution to the problems in the world, but fix your eyes on me, on my glory and beauty. He wants that for his followers then and now. 
Have you ever beheld, looked at, beheld is a better word. Have you ever beheld something that's just, it's just so amazing. It just captivates you. It somehow changes uh, how you feel. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's like the northern lights, right? Like, wow, oh, I'm seeing the northern lights. Wow, that changed. You, this wonderful fireworks display, and you're looking up, and all of a sudden you look around at all the people who see their light, their faces being lit up. How amazing that is. Or, or this, this baby, <laughs> a friend has a baby, and, and you can hold it, and hold it, and it smiles at you, and it like giggles, and you're like, wow. That's like beholding the glory of Jesus in this crazy world. Last. Jesus prays for his disciples then and now for God's love within us and through us. Verse 26 says, That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Thank you, Lord. He wants us to know it, to experience it ourselves, this love. And it's a part of our purpose in the world. And then to share it with others. So many people are struggling and there's despair and there's confusion and everything else. They don't think there's any purpose to anything, or they don't think that their life has a trajectory, but there is. We are invited, as the hands and feet of Jesus, to get in on the ways that he is bringing heaven to earth. The amazing things that he is doing to bring heaven to earth, and we get to be a part of that, forgiven and blessed by God, and experience this reconciliation with God in this life and into the next. And we can, we can be a part of this help and hope that God is working in the world. And so he prays that that is in us and that we get to share with other people. Uh, I'm hesitant to quote someone from the royal family because they're going through some weird things. But um, someone I think we could all, you know, had, a, had an incredible heart, uh, Princess Diana. Um, before she passed away, um, and, but after her, her marriage failed, she was speaking to a newspaper and she said this, the greatest disease in the world is the disease of being unloved. It was something she experienced. The greatest disease in the world is the disease of being unloved. And with this kind of reality somewhere lurking around in our thoughts, God wants us to experience his love. His love, this powerful love that he has for us and in us and through us. So much so, don't just keep it to yourselves. Be my hands and feet in the world. Share this with the people around you. It's called the Great Command, the Great Commission. And that is actually God's will for us. To summarize, one, Jesus prays for you to have eternal life. Two, for being kept or guarded in God. Three, for his joy to be within you. Four, for his protection from the evil one. Five, for holiness in God's truth. Six, for unity among believers. Seven, for being at his side and seeing his glory. Eight, for God's love within us and through us. And so no, we can't transport back uh, in a time machine to sit at the feet of Jesus, but we can actually hear a prayer that he prayed for his disciples then also intended for us today, which also speaks to what he wants for our lives. And so think of that map again, right? That big picture map. And we want that high level map, uh, and we have it, but also we want those specific inset details. And so what we need to do as we think about that insert, and I hope you take it home with you or look it up online, and as we pray for the things that Jesus prays for, as we think about these big picture purposes that God intends for our lives, we take these things and then we apply them to those specific situations that we are in. Okay, if these are the, what Jesus prays for you is God's will for you. 
And so how am I going to apply that in this relationship? How am I going to apply that in, in my household? How am I going to apply that, can I, in this big decision that lays ahead of me? How am I going to apply that with this deep thing that I'm wrestling with in my soul that no one knows about? What Jesus prays for you is God's will for you. Praise be to God. Amen.